But we're happy to be back, and we're also going to be back in uh, First and First Corinthians, back in our series in First Corinthians today. So that's where we're going to be at, and we're going to be in chapter five and six. Now, um, anytime you get a chance to get into the Word, it's a really good thing, you know. Anytime you can read the Bible, it's very, very important. It's very good. It's healthy. It's you know. It's one of the things that we put out there as a basic expectation of those who are members of Parker Ford Church is that they'll be in the Word, that they're reading the Word, you know. Uh, Because the Word is, Jesus says, we live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We live and find our being through the Word. It's the authority. However, when we read the Word of God, it's not always easy. um, And it's not always pleasant. You know, it's not easy because it's not always easy to understand what it's talking about. And and, uh, we're in a spiritual exercise when we read the scriptures and there's good and evil in the spiritual world and evil wants to draw us uh, draw our attention away from understanding what the scriptures say you know but god wants us to to understand so it's a real hard-fought battle sometimes in studying the scriptures which what's more is when we read the scriptures we tend to be convicted at times by the scriptures which doesn't make it pleasant uh you know this morning i was late actually getting here to church a little bit because i lost track of time i was in the word this morning like i do pretty much every morning and uh i realized as i'm sitting there eating breakfast i'm like oh my goodness i'm supposed to be down at church like right now you know um like and uh i leave myself some cushion room but still i was running behind and jen was like wow, what's going on? And I was like, well, I got caught up in the Word this morning. I didn't realize how much time I was taking while I was in the Word. And I read more than usual, and I was just really processing with the Lord in prayer and stuff. And she said, well, that's good. And I was like, kind of, except I was kind of getting my butt kicked by the Bible. You know, like, it was tough. So it wasn't, it's not always easy, you know. Um, But one of the most disturbing things that can happen when we read the Scripture is this, is that our foundational beliefs around morality, around ethics, around theology in general, around what reality is, they can be rocked. I mean, we can, they can be exposed as myths. Our assumptions can be exposed as myths. And it's easy for us to think, well, we're kind of beyond that. But actually, I think that the further you grow in your maturity in Christ and the deeper you grow in knowledge of the Word, the more we realize how much we're influenced by things other than the Word. And we start to realize that my thought patterns around what's right and wrong and about what's real and not, they're shaped a whole lot more by the world than I actually realize. And the deeper I get into the word, the more I'm, I, I become aware of that. The more I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, you know, it's easy in, in a, in a quote-unquote Christian nation, you know, where Christianity is the main religion, to assume that our ethics and morality are something that have come somehow from the scriptures. But we're told by the scriptures that we live in a world that's influenced by all sorts of voices beyond the scriptures. So even if we're in a quote-unquote Christian nation, much of what we're understanding about morality, much of what we're understanding about reality is being fed to us from a source other than the scriptures. And every time we click that TV on and we're hearing images or turn that radio on or every time we listen to our friends at work, there's a conversation and there's communication that's happening. And we have no idea how we're being shaped by all of that. But it is shaping our sense of morality and our sense of ethics and our sense of reality. And it shapes us. And it's not till we get into the Word and we realize if we actually believe that this is the authority, if we believe that this is truly authority for reality, for truth, for morality and ethics in my life, once I believe that, then I have to be ready. I have to be ready and prepared for the fact that this might rock my world a little bit. You know, that I might be challenged not just in how I live, 
and not just in how to understand this thing, but I might be challenged by the basic assumptions of the Scripture and the basic assumptions of my life. And they might come into conflict, and I have to decide in that moment whether I actually do believe that this is authority or whether I'm the authority, and whether I'll yield to what the Scriptures say or whether I'm going to make the Scriptures yield to what I think. You know, and uh, And there's no point in our lives when we're like, oh, we're past that. We have a basic good understanding of what it's about at this point. As a matter of fact, I find that the deeper people go into spiritual maturity, the more they find foundational levels of things that need to change in their thinking, not just in their behavior, but in their thinking, the way I view things. And uh, I find this all the time. I know uh, uh, on the elder board, uh, the elders find this all the time. We'll talk about, yeah, you know, like I think that I've thought this but I'm being challenged by this. Right now, we're talking about some stuff on the, on the elder board where, you know, we're having to take certain passages of Scripture and line them all up and read them together and say, you know, I've always kind of thought this, but I don't know if that's actually what the Scriptures say. We need to really look at this together, you know, and we need to dig into that together. We've assumed that because that's what we've been taught or what we've heard other preachers say or whatever. We've got to dig into this thing. And anyway, some of our basic assumptions can really be rocked. Uh, you know, you hear people quote things at times that they think are Scripture that aren't really Scripture. You know, like God helps those who help themselves. Like, I, that's not actually scriptural, you know. Uh, or like good things come to those who wait. Kind of a biblical principle, but not actually Scripture, you know. And there's quotes at times where people say things and they kind of assume since it's a good moral quote, that came from Scripture and that kind of shapes how they think. But That's not necessarily Scripture. And then we quote some things in Scripture that are Scripture, and yet we use them in ways that aren't really the way the Scripture is intended, or we use them in isolation, and and we don't round them out, or we kind of misquote it a little bit, like money is the root of all evil. It's not the root of all evil, right? And the love of money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Um, But, like, money isn't the root of all evil. As a matter of fact... I'm pretty sure that I'm the root of all evil. You know, like my heart is, you know, my mind is. And, uh, and so it's what's going on inside. But we misquote things and it ends up shaping us. Well, there's two places in American culture where I believe uh, we're challenged by these two chapters of Scripture today. Two kind of assumptions that we have in our belief system. One is that we believe that people aren't supposed to judge other people. The judgment is bad. We've heard Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7, judge not, lest ye be judged. And in the same way that you judge another, you too will also be judged. And so we've used that as a universal statement to say that under no circumstances should any person ever judge another person. Well, that stinks because now Judge Judy's out of a job, you know. And uh, what are you going to do when our whole judicial system collapses if one a person is never allowed to judge another? What happens for a parent when they have to decide whether or not what their kids is doing is okay or healthy? They have to judge. What happens when you're looking for a spouse and you're trying to find out whether this is the right person to connect with or not? You have to make some judgment calls about that. Judgment is a huge part of our society. And if there's going to be any wisdom and if there's going to be any judgment, then there better also be some leeway for judging appropriately. Jesus checks us on how to judge and how not to judge in Matthew chapter 7. But if we think that there's never a place and a time where we're to be in judgment, then we have to read 1 Corinthians 5 because it's going to tell us otherwise. Second thing is that we have a tendency to believe that our bodies are evil. 
that we read in the scriptures a little bit about the war between flesh and spirit. And there's kind of this misconception that happens in many religious circles that things of the flesh, things of the body, are, are they're either unimportant and immaterial, they're just it's not important, or they are evil. That things of spirit are good, things of body are bad. Physical things, bad. Spiritual things, good. But what is Satan? A spiritual thing, right? So spirit, all spiritual things aren't good, you know? And everything that's spirit isn't good. And everything that flesh isn't bad, you know? Before I came over this morning, uh, Jen gave me a kiss and told me, like, do good today. We're praying for you, you know? That wasn't bad. It was great, you know? It was awesome to have that kind of encouragement and that sort of connection, you know, with someone we love. And so things of the body aren't bad and things of the, uh, of the spirit aren't good, but we have this tendency to kind of think that. And that things of the body are sub-level. They're kind of unimportant and bad, but, but things of the spirit are good. And that reflects an ancient heresy called Gnosticism, which Paul fought against in his day. And we still fight against today. So Paul exposes both of these things as mythical in this text, but that's not his intention. That's not his primary objective in the text here when he's talking to the church in Corinth. What he's trying to do is help them experience the fullness of life in Christ. He wants them to experience what life in Christ can really be like, but he's thinking they're missing it. They're not experiencing the fullness of it. And these two things that he's kind of debunking are, are part of the problem. Okay, Now, we're, this was going to be two different messages between chapter 5 and chapter 6. Problem is, chapter 6... Uh, was going to be next week, and the title of the message for next week was, Do I Have a Good Body? Okay, And it was talking about sexuality, and it was talking about things like that. And then I realized when I looked at the schedule, next week is Children's Day. <laughs> Hello! And it's the end of VBS, and all the kids are going to be in here with us. And I'm like, I'm not going to preach on that. It talks about uniting yourself with prostitutes and all sorts of things. You know, I'm like, we're not going to talk about that on Children's Day. So I kind of lumped them all into one here, and it's going to be a little more abbreviated on each of those topics. Um, but it's a, a longer, pa- uh, longer, longer passage for me to read because of that, because it's two chapters instead of one. They're short chapters, but, but it's longer. So um, I'm not going to have you stand in honor of God's word. We're kind of reading deep into the message here today, uh, but I'm not going to have you stand for it. Uh, you can stand on the inside but I don't want your weak legs to distract your, our weak minds from the Scripture. Allow us to uh, allow God to give our minds strength to hang in there for two chapters and uh, don't have to worry about our legs by standing today. So join me in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife I told you the Corinthians were messed up. (laughs) A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit, and I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, Hand this man over to Satan so that his sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of our Lord, the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are 
For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. Wow. Verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Chapter 6. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes among, about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. It is possible... Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and, in this, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Everything is permissible for me. But not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead and He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Join me in prayer, please.
God, I thank you and praise you for your word. It is good. And uh, this one is one that we don't read all the time in church for obvious reasons. And, uh, and yet it's one of those ones that uh, there's just a wealth of stuff going on in this text. And we ask, God, that you would help us to shape our lives according to your text again today, that you would shape our lives around your text, that we would receive the truth and our minds and our hearts would wrap themselves around the truth of your word and it would change our lives. In Christ's name, amen. So Paul's intention is to get them to experience the fullness of life in Christ. And Christ is within them, and they're not experiencing the fullness of it. Have you ever seen one of these? If you've ever watched TV, you've seen commercials for cars. You've seen commercials for pickup trucks. You've seen commercials for fast cars, okay? And there's, like, two things that always make me laugh a little bit. The pickup truck scene and all the advertisement about pickup trucks, it's like, our pickup truck can tow like 50 million tons, okay? And they show pictures of stuff like dropping from the sky and landing in the pickup truck, and it's going across these like mountain ranges. And it's like, okay, that's great, but like how many of us ever actually put that to test? You know, we go and get one of these like, oh, my pickup truck is so fierce, and I never really use it for that type of thing, you know? Or I use it a little bit, but like, Really, did I need that much towing capacity? And the same thing with like a fast car, right? I mean, like this has like however many horsepower in it. And, and I'm like, well, if you actually realize that potential, you should be locked up, okay? And so like, it does, like we can sell it based on that, but then like we're not going to use it. You're sitting on a gold mine you can't use, which I don't know if you looked in, in the bulletin that you have today. There was, there was this like actually fun little thing about a car in there that's a flying car. It's like a car that also flies, and it says that uh, they made these for a little while, and they're kind of like vintage now, but this one guy spent, uh, I think, a million and a quarter on buying one of these, you know, this car that can also fly. Well, I was laughing before the service, because I saw that before the service, because there was this uh, newscast that I saw this week about a guy who spent not a million and a quarter on a car, but $35 million dollars on a Ferrari. Not a new Ferrari. This is an old school Ferrari, a limited edition Ferrari. It was this old Ferrari. He spent 35 mil. There is no car that's worth 35 mil, right? I mean, nothing. There's very few things in this world that are worth 35 million dollars. But he bought a car for 35 million dollars. All right, then he takes it to this rally to kind of like drive it with a bunch of other guys who own these vintage Ferraris and everything. Guess what? Wrecked it wrecked it, $35 million car. So the newscasters, they're, they're sitting here next to each other, and they are debating if this guy should have driven the car or not. And the one guy, the, the, the one guy's like, this is, if you're going to spend $35 million, there is a reason to do that. It's actually an investment. This is a collector's item. You can actually make money on it. It's actually a decent investment. But if you're going to have an investment, if you have that kind of money, and you're going to spend that kind of money on a car like that, well, you shouldn't drive it. You should have it in a showcase somewhere. This is a $35 million investment. To which the other newscaster is like, are you kidding me? If you spend $35 million on a car, you better drive that bad boy and see what it can do, you know? And uh, so they're having this debate about whether or not to realize the potential of $35 million worth of car, you know? And, uh, and, and this, is, this is kind of what Paul's doing, except he's not doing it around cars. He's doing it around spiritual lives. We do this around physical lives. This is what the Olympics are about. You know, that's what the Olympics are about, realizing the full potential of the human body, 
That's what the point of the Olympics is. From the beginning, the Olympics were never just about competing to see who was the best. It was about trying to maximize the human body. There was kind of a humanistic side of this where it was almost even a worship thing where it was like seeing the, the beauty of what all the, the, the uh, human body can do. I don't know if you've ever seen any of the, the opening ceremonies of some of the games. Sometimes they get into some weird stuff around the human body and everything. That's because the origins originally of Olympics were all about like seeing the power of the human body. And competition was just a means to maximize the, the, uh, the potential of the human body. When you have someone else who's competing with you and now you push hard and harder. But the whole point is to reveal the potential of the human body. When someone's will is focused, their body is fine-tuned, what's actually, what, what's capable of. And we'll see that, you know, this summer. It's always impressive what the human body can do. But what happens when Christ lives among us? What can actually happen in a human when Christ dwells within them? I mean, if the human body can do that in the Olympics, and, and a car can do all of this, what can we do when the living God of the universe is living inside of us? You know, what, what's actually possible? Uh, D.L. Moody was the founder of the school, uh, Moody Bible Institute, where we met Paul and Beth, our, uh, our missionaries who are with us now. It's also where I met Josh. He was my roommate when I came walking in my freshman year. And uh, yeah, we won't get into that. And, uh, but more importantly than all of that, it's where I met Jen my wife, and, uh, and found the love of my life, and that was awesome. But it, it has, God has used that school, the, the relationships that we found in that school, to birth a lot of stuff in our lives, including kids. And um, D.L. Moody, the guy who was the founder of the school, and it's his namesake, he was an evangelist, great evangelist. Uh, many, many, many people started their relationship with God through his ministry. While he was young and a kid, and in England, he had this encounter in a Bible study where this guy said to him, he said, the world has yet to see what God can do with one man whose life is fully dedicated to Christ. The world has yet to see what God can do through the life of one man who's fully dedicated to Christ. And he was like, huh. I'd like to see what that's all about. So he decides to go after Christ. And, and many people who we have held out there as great, uh, you know, foundation, foundational people in the faith are people who have tried to give their life wholly to Christ and realize the full potential of Christ in their life. There's this uh, story of Hudson Taylor. If you know of Hudson Taylor, he's a great missionary over in China. And uh, the autobiography of him says, one of the autobiographies talks about him and his brother being born in England to the same family. And his brother decides to go and give his life to bureaucracy in the parliament in England and make a name for himself. And then it goes on to say, well, at the end of his life, history will reveal that he's only known as the brother of Hudson Taylor, who decided instead of going and making a name for himself, decided that he would go and make a name for Christ and give himself completely to Christ and see what Christ was capable of. And this is what happens when we realize the potential of Christ among us. When we exercise the potential of Christ among us. When we live in faith and dependence on him, it's untold what can take place. And what Paul's urging is for them to shape their lives around the reality, around the reality of Christ among them. Now, Paul has, as you know, in, in, in this letter to Corinth, he's already kind of totally deconstructed their false theology. Remember, they were living in their different groups, the Apollos group, the Peter group, and their favorite preachers and all of that. And, <coughs> excuse me, and they're trying to have like 
be more wise than the next person with all their secret wisdom and all that. And basically what Paul does is he, he boils it all down and he says, look, there's one spirit. There's one place of redemption. It's found on the cross. Christ dies for us and we are reborn. And if we are reborn and his spirit lives among us, then there is one spirit. There's Jesus. And if we are one together, then we are revealing Christ. If we are fractioned and in competition, we're not revealing Christ and we're not maturing in Christ. Come together in Christ. Be broken. Our wisdom and all of that is not found in being super smart. It's found in being dependent on Christ. And spiritual maturity is learning to depend on him. At the end of that, He establishes himself again as authority in their life. And he says this, that the purpose of spiritual authority is not to be the wiser person who can guide everyone along. The the purpose is, is they're the ones who guard the gospel, guard the truth in the community. And if they see things, the thought patterns, and if they see the, the lifestyles revealing something other than the scriptures, then it's their job to guard that in order to keep Christ at the center and Christ as the authority. He's just established himself as that authority figure in their life through this, uh, through this, uh, through like chapters three and four there again. And now what he says, the first thing after that, in hopes of them realizing their potential, is he says this, he said, and now I want to tell you that as your authority figure, I'm looking and what I'm seeing, guys, is blowing my mind because it's not just that you have like disunity. It's not just that there's this struggle for you guys to get along. It's not just that you have tried to find your superior wisdom and have got boastful and proud. This stuff has worked itself out all the way to your, the basic lifestyles of your body. There's, it's reported that there's even sexual immorality among you. And this is where he goes with the sexual immorality. He says, it's worse than, than what you see in, in the rest of the world. He's like, this guy is with his dad's wife. And you guys are proud of him. You know? Remember at the beginning, Josh said about the Corinthians series, he got up here and he said, Tim better tell you what the Corinthians were actually doing, you know? Well, today I'm telling you, okay? They were like, this is, it's nasty, you know, the the sexual sexual stuff that was going on there, you know? And, And what's happening in the middle of that is Paul is looking at that and it's not just concern about like, oh, this doesn't look good or this is bad stuff. He's saying, if Christ is among you, and this type of thing is happening, your heart should be broken. You should be grieving what's happening. Instead, what's happening is you're proud of this guy. You think he's cool for it. Like this isn't just about immorality and living inappropriately. It's about taking pride in the things that aren't appropriate. And this is still present in our society, isn't it? Isn't it still like, you know, sexuality is something that is used for pride. You know, it's, it's a, a, a woman flaunting her sexuality to reflect her beauty. It's Mr. Casanova thinking that he has more checks under his belt or whatever because he's, he's chased after this person or people. And there's this whole thing that's not just about immorality. It's about idolatry. It's about idolizing in our society a picture of sexuality and people feeling better or worse about themselves based on their own kind of sexual identity or something. And this is what Paul's going after with him. He's saying, it's not just that we're living inappropriately. It's that we're taking pride in those who are living inappropriately. And he said, this should be grieving our hearts because this isn't the way of Christ. And Christ lives within us. And not only should it be grieving our hearts, we should be protecting against this stuff. And this is where he starts to get into the whole thing about yeast. And when he talks about yeast, he's talking about unleavened bread and yeast. And where, where in the scriptures do we deal with yeast and unleavened bread? 
Passover, thank you. Passover. So Passover is when we have unleavened bread. Passover originally happened when? It was the first Passover. Moses, Egypt, you know, after the plagues, when they have to get out of town, and he tells them to cook bread without yeast in it. And this is symbolic. That, that lack of yeast in the bread is symbolic. What happens when you take a little bit of yeast and you mix it in with the dough and then you bake it? It rises. Does a part of it rise? All of it rises. So it changes the texture, the shape. It can even change the taste of the entire loaf of bread by getting a little yeast in it. Jesus, at a Passover, right before he goes to the cross, remember, takes the Passover bread and he breaks it and he says, this is what? My body. Why is it important that this bread, the body, doesn't have yeast in it? What is yeast symbolic of? What is Paul saying it's symbolic of? Sin, the body of Christ, is sinless. He has the unleavened Passover bread, and it's being broken for us. The sinless one, the, the, the bread without yeast in it, is being broken. This is perfect, pure bread, not uh, tainted by the yeast, okay? It's not that there's anything wrong necessarily with eating bread with yeast in it, but there's a symbol, a picture that's being painted. What Paul is saying to us is in the same way, we are the body of Christ. And you take a little bit of that sin... And you mix it in with the body and it changes the whole picture of the body of Christ. It changes our theology. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we interact with each other. And if we let sin creep into our lives, it changes our lives. It changes the taste of our lives. It changes the look of our lives, the shape of our lives. It changes everything. And we might think we're just dabbling with a little bit of sin. And he's like, you got to take care of that stuff because it'll mess up everything. We don't deal a whole lot with unleavened bread in our society, but it'd be kind of like if you take coffee and you take a nice, nice dark cup of coffee, you know, like real strong Charbox coffee, you know, and, and you take that and then you take this little pink packet of sweet and low or something, you know, and you dump it in there. And what happens? Volume-wise, it's like this tiny little packet next to this big cup of coffee, but it changes the entire cup of coffee, right? And changes it. And Ron Elliott, you know, uh, he, in the first service, said to us, he said, as soon as I said that, he's like, yeah, it ruins it, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, it, it kind of does. Um, and, or for some of us, it, we might think it ruins it. For some of us, it, it tastes great, but it changes the entire cup of coffee. If you don't like sweetener in your coffee, there's no part of that coffee now that you can have that doesn't taste like that. And when sin enters into our lives, there aren't parts of our lives that are okay now, and this part isn't. The whole thing gets messed up. Same thing with the body of Christ, the community. When we let sin take place, immorality take place among us, it doesn't just change me, it changes the whole body. Like the whole thing is like, it swirls in and it mixes in and it changes everything. And see, we have this tendency to ask this kind of question. And we have this tendency to say this, okay, over here is sin. And over here is the Christian life. Am I? And so then we ask God this, we say, Am I allowed to do this, God? Or how about this? Am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to do this? When Evan, our son, when he was, uh, I don't know, a real little guy, and we were in Ephraim, we had a flower bed in the backyard, and we had Gerber daisies. And you know Gerber daisies, they grow like one flower on them. They don't grow a whole bunch of flowers. So if you lose that flower, you pretty much lost your plant. Like there's no, no point to that plant anymore. And so we had this rule with Evan that he wasn't allowed to touch the Gerber daisies because he just wanted to pick them, you know? And, and so he, I remember the one time we were trying to teach him and he went over and he touched the, the Gerber daisy. And I was like, Evan, no. And he like looks at me 
And he touches it again. So I came over and like tapped him on the hand. No. And he's like, okay. He steps to the next one. And he goes over and looks right at me. And he touches the next one. And I'm like, no. He goes to the next one. All the way down. Every Gerber daisy he went and touched until I said no to each one. And after that, he never touched another one. But he wanted to see where the boundaries were. He wanted to see the loophole. And just because I can't touch this one and this one and this one and this one might not mean that I can't touch that one, you know? And this is kind of how we tend to be in our relationship with God, where we say, okay, God, there's all of this stuff that all these pleasures of the world or whatever, like, can I do this? Can I do that? How much of this can I do? Can I do that? Can I do this? Can I do that? And that's kind of the, the, the conversation that happens all the time with God, with people and God. But I, I just want to let you know, that conversation is not, that kind of question isn't the question of a Christian. That's not the question of a Christian. That's the question of someone who's trying to be a Christian. Because I want to be a Christian. I want God to approve of me. So I want to know, can I do this? Can I do that? Can I do, what can I get away with? But my focus is on this stuff. And so what I'm saying is, is God, I, I want you to be happy with me, but I really want to do this stuff. So what can I do and what can I do? You know, but the question of a person who's a Christian is completely different. Because the whole Christian life is about something different than just what we do and what we don't do. It's not about how much good stuff we do and how much bad stuff we don't do. The Christian life according to Jesus, is about rebirth. It's about being born again. It's about a new identity. It's about becoming someone altogether different and not by our own merits, but by him on a cross. And when he dies, we die with him. And when he rises, we have been made something new. So the question of a Christian is, who am I and how do I live in the reality, this new reality of who I am? The question of a Christian is not like Evan, can I do this, can I do this? The question of a Christian is like Peter Parker who woke up and realized that he could shoot spiders or shoot webs from his wrists. And all of a sudden he's like, who am I? What is this? Who am I? How?" And he has to start to realize, I'm no longer just Peter Parker. I'm Spider-Man. And what do I do as Spider-Man? Life has to change now. I have responsibilities. I have a whole new set of joys and a whole new set of sorrows. Everything has changed because now all of a sudden, I'm not just Peter Parker, I'm Spider-Man. And when Christ dies on the cross for us and he rises us up, he says, we are not our own. That's how this whole chapter ends. You are not your own. You have been bought at a price. You are something new. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a member of the body of Christ. What we thought we were back here is no longer what we are over here. I'm asking questions, living in this realm over here, trying to decide what I can and can't do because I want to act like a Christian. When he's saying, no, 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 no. No, forget all of that. You have to realize that you have been made completely different. Your outlook on life, your responsibilities in life, who you are is something entirely different than you've ever thought before. And the question is not, what am I allowed to do or what am I not allowed to do? But how do I live within the reality of this new person you've made me to be? This isn't a curse. This isn't a problem. This is a joy. This is great fortune. This is pleasure. He has made me a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God. He has made me a temple of the Holy Spirit. And God Almighty from heaven above and he who rose from the grave lives within me. I am new. I have a new identity. What does it mean to live in that new identity? That's the question of a Christian. What does it mean to live 
in that new identity. And how we live with our physical lives reveals that. It reveals whether or not we believe that we are this new creature or whether we believe that we are this old creature. The battleground is a heart of submission, whether our hearts will be submitted to Christ and therefore whether our minds will actually believe Christ. And if our hearts are submitted, then we will believe that this is the authority. And when we believe that this is the authority, then we believe it's true. And that says that I'm a new creature. And what that means is, is I have to, now the battlefield is in my mind where I actually have to choose to believe that I am something different than what I've grown to believe I am. And that my body is not actually my own. That it is owned by Christ. He bought it with his blood. And I now am part of his body, an unleavened bread that's without sin. I have to figure out what does it mean to live within that? And this isn't just a struggle to kick sin out of my life. I can't do that. He can, but I have to choose to believe and learn to receive that life and believe that that is the life I was created for. And that this stuff over here that has looked like pleasure to me, it's not actually pleasure at all. It's just a lie. I want to ask you this. After you read Genesis chapter 2 and 3, when you see they go into the garden and they t- they, they're in the garden and they take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil the fruit that looked so good and they tasted it and then everything falls apart. Let me ask you a question. Do they ever talk about how good the fruit tasted after that? Do you ever hear Adam saying, man, I wish I could have that fruit again? You know, that's never the yearning after that. It's not like that. It was just a lie. Every time that we are tempted with immorality, every time that we are tempted with evil, every time we are tempted with worldly pleasure, it looks so good, but as soon as you take the bite, instantly the spirit begins to change and we're not actually happy. There's some sort of physical sensation that might be pleasing for a second, but we're not actually happy. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't help us. It doesn't make us feel good overall. As a matter of fact, it takes us the other way. We start feeling guilty. We start feeling shame. We start feeling emptiness. We start feeling purposelessness the second that we live according to it. The enemy would have us believe that that's actually pleasure. But all it is is a lie. It's packaged nice, but inside of it, it's not a gift. It's a curse. And the reality is that he has created us to be these beings who indwell, who he indwells, and who we realize the beautiful potential of our lives with Christ in us and Christ in us among us. And he says again that the way that we can tell whether or not we're trusting him with our lives and we believe that our lives are his is how we live our lives. So then he goes down and he shows us different topics. With sexuality, God made it very clear how sexuality was supposed to work. A man and a woman come together in the bounds of marriage and they enjoy one another and they're supposed to celebrate that and they're supposed to enjoy that in front of God and that's glorifying to God. Anything outside of that, any way you mix it, you add more numbers to that, You add less numbers to that. You change genders around in that. You change the boundaries around the commitments around that. You do anything beyond the way God said to do it, and that's called immorality. That's what the scriptures teach. Okay, it doesn't matter. It's not this brand of it and this brand of it and this brand of it. There's one thing that's okay, and and it's perfect. God created it, and it's not to be something that's scorned. It's not something that's bad. Sex is awesome. It was created by God. It's so good. It's a really good thing that he gave to men and women to enjoy inside the bounds of marriage to bind them together. Everything outside of that makes it idolatry and immorality. Okay? And, but inside the bounds, it's a beautiful thing. 
And we can honor God with it inside the bounds. When it comes to food, Paul goes on to talk about it with food. And he says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body was made for the Lord. The body was made for the Lord. And what he's saying is, is that when it comes to how we treat our bodies, these bodies, what we let go into these bodies, they're not ours. We don't use these bodies just to please ourselves. We use them to please the Lord. He gave us food to eat, and we need food to live. And so we eat to live. And he even told us that we will enjoy the pleasure of the finest of food, the richest of fare. But you know where he tells it, how will, in uh, Psalm 63, he says, if we will go after him first, then we will delight in the richest of fare. So if our delight is found in him, then we will find that the food gets put in balance in our lives. And instead of being gluttony, it ends up being a blessing from God and it ends up being good. But honestly, if we overindulge in food, this is breaking the plan for God in our life. That's called gluttony. And this isn't, oh, shame. What this is, is, now that's the stuff back here. For those who haven't been purchased, we live in the kingdom of God. We eat rich fare. If I learn to believe that I am a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God, that I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit, I have much more to find joy in than just the next meal. It's the same thing with alcohol. He goes on and talks about drunkenness. It's the same thing with relationships. And he goes down, uh, he goes on and on on these lists of things, talking about immorality and gluttony and drunkenness and all of that. And all of that is just the stuff that God has given us that's really good if used appropriately. And then when we step out of it, all of a sudden, we are making the bodies belong to us and we are our own gods. And we are stepping out. We're not experienced. We're not taking that $35 million car out for a drive. We're not experiencing the full potential of life in Christ. Instead, we're allowing that sweet and low to get into the good coffee or we're allowing the yeast to get into the, to the bread. And so he's calling us out on it, okay? So it's not that our bodies are unimportant. They're incredibly important. They've been bought with a price. And he's given us these bodies to honor him with. And it's important that the way we use our bodies honors God and glorifies God. Very important. Now this body that we're a part of now is no longer just ours. Um, some of you know Rob and Alicia Kingston. Um, they're on vacation this week, so they're not here with us. Uh, when they, they helped with the organization of the yard sale, that we had here. And when they were cleaning out their uh, basement to, for the yard sale and everything, Rob had all these old toys, like real old, like G.I. Joe's and, uh, you know, all this stuff. Well, he had this one set of, and he was given a bunch of toys to my kids, which was really cool. And um, he gave this one set of toys, which was, I think it was called Lionsgate or something. I don't know if any of you remember it. It, was, uh, it, it looks almost like a transformer, okay? And my, my boys love this thing. It's this big, like, man robot thing. But each of its arms and legs and torso comes off and makes a different lion. Okay, so you have like all these lions. And then they come together and they make this big uh, guy together. Well, you know, this is, uh, when I, when it was a great teaching opportunity because that's the picture of once life is in Christ, we are no longer our own. We're part of a greater body. You know, and when we go down into those waters of baptism, when we are taken down into the grave with Christ, when we, we rise up, we are no longer our own. And so therefore, what I recognize is, is while I am working hard to defend my life from the yeast of the enemy, from the sweet and low of the enemy, you know, when I'm trying to defend my life, it is not only my life that needs to be defended. It's our life that needs to be defended. It's the body of Christ. 
And the way we do this is the, it's, it's the lies, it's the deception of the enemy. And we have to, we're, we're told we have to be washed in the water of the word. So individually, we have to be diligently seeking the word of God if our minds are going to be tough against the deceptions of the enemy. We have to realize this is reality. It's not the clicker that's the reality. It's not the things I'm hearing from the radio that are the reality. It's not the conversations at work that are reality. This is reality. And if I will choose to live in the full potential of life in Christ, then I must find reality here and live within it. So I individually have to be in the word and I individually have to be watching my life. But we are a body together. Okay, And what that means is, is that it is not just my responsibility to guard my life, it's my responsibility to guard your life. You know, We guard each other's life. And this is what Paul says all the time. He's constantly going after the churches, telling them to teach one another, rebuke one another, correct one another, instruct each other. And, and, and that's part of life in Christ. And we, you know, this is where accountability becomes very important because we all have blind spots. I know I do. I know that all of you can look at me right now and you see things about me that I don't see about myself. That's a scary thought, you know? That's kind of like a little humbling. But that's true of all of us, that there are things about us that we don't see on our own. And if we want to experience the full potential of Christ in us and Christ among us, We need one another because we don't have the full perspective of the scriptures on our own and we don't have the full perspective of our lives on our own. And so we need each other to understand this thing and we need each other to understand this thing, you know? And we need to be in conversation and communication. And so while we are uh, have a tendency to hear Jesus say, judge not lest ye be judged in chapter 7 of Matthew, we also need to fast forward to chapter 18 of Matthew when we hear Jesus say that if your brother is in sin, go and let him know so that you can restore him. And if he won't listen to you, take a friend with you and then go and communicate to him and try to restore him. And if he still won't listen to you, go and get elders of the church and go back with them and try to restore him. And if he still hasn't listened to you, then treat him as a pagan. Words of Jesus that sound very similar to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians. You know, all of us have sin in our lives, so we might say right now, I'm in trouble. You know, I shouldn't be here. You know, I'm a sinner. I shouldn't be here. Well, we're all sinners, you know, which is why Christ died on the cross. The question is whether we're trying now to believe this new reality of what he's created us to be and we're desiring to live within it. And if we are, then we come to this place for this purpose to say, God, I want you to redeem me and I want to worship you and I need all of these people here to help me live in the reality of what you've created me to be. And so what I do is I grant access to the church and say, open season. You know, I be gentle with me, be kind with me. You know, I can't be perfect, but I do need your help in learning where I'm missing life in Christ, where I'm not living within the realm of scripture. And I need your help with this thing. And this doesn't happen primarily with leadership coming down on other people and telling them how they should live. This is friend to friend saying, look, I've seen what's going on in that relationship. You guys aren't married. You know, it shouldn't be like that. You know, I've seen how you're going after food right now. You know, God loves you and there's more pleasure to be found than just the pleasure of food. 
you know? And, and I, I see what's going on with the bottle right now. And while you hear all over the scriptures the beauty of God's blessing with filling your vats with new wine, he has said pretty hard about the whole drunkenness thing, man. You've got to lay off the sauce because you're looking to that instead of looking to Christ, you know? And we have to come alongside one another and we have to encourage one another and point each other toward Christ and say, this is life in Jesus, okay? And, and I want you to experience the fullness of that, but it's not just that I want you to experience the fullness of it, it's that I want us to experience the fullness of it. And if you're doing that stuff, you're bringing yeast into the body, you know? And, and this is how we need to deal with one another. It's how Christ calls us to deal with each other. It's how Paul calls the church in Corinth. Now, we don't expect that anyone who walks in and sits down in the pew of a church, that the next Sunday you come up to a person and be like, hey, you got to watch this. This is when we get into committed relationships inside of a church and we build trust, that we get to a place with people where we say, hey, I want you to hold me in check. You know, I want you to speak truth to me. And we love each other enough to help each other experience the fullness of life in Christ. D.L. Moody heard that phrase, that the world has yet to see what God can do with one man whose life is fully devoted to Christ. But I would also say that I think the world has yet to see what God can do with one local church who has decided to fully devote themselves to Christ and to each other. That it's not just individuals, but when we as a community say, we're going after Christ, and I know I can't do it on my own, and I need your help, can, can we like partner here and be honest with each other about life a little bit? I think that the potential is, is absolutely spectacular of what God will do with the church if we choose to hold each other accountable to being dependent on Jesus. I know that I need the accountability. I'm no super Christian. I don't think any of us are. We all need Christ, and we all need each other to help us live in that new reality. And so I, I ask that as we pray in our lives, pray that God would lead us into those relationships here at Parker Ford Church, where we can actually not just kind of do our best, but do our best, you know, with Christ. All right, let's pray.